Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. There's no guarantee that if you have kids, they'll take care of you when you get older. But if you don't have kids, that's not even an option which means you're thinking about long-term care and aging in general in a very unique way. Which brings me to today's guest. I'm joined by Scott Joyce, who lives in Los Angeles with his partner of 20 years. They don't have kids, and Scott in particular knows how hard it can be to care for someone you love, having been a long-distance caregiver for his parents. But before we get into that, by way of introduction, I should say that Scott is the president and chief executive officer of Scott Joyce Design, Inc., an architectural and design firm based in L.A. His projects range from homes in Malibu and Bel Air to a New York City apartment, a vacation home in Florida, and more recently work in the aviation industry, where Scott is designing custom interiors and exteriors for planes. Scott's work has been featured in several prominent design and style publications, including Metropolitan Home, House Beautiful, In Style Magazine, and Elle Decor. I'm so happy today to have you here. Scott Joyce, welcome to the podcast. Jenna, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's start with a little bit about where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in Philadelphia, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, excuse me, and lived in a house that my parents bought when I was about five years old. Uh-huh. And it was with them their whole life. Wow. So it was a family home that they had for 55 years. Mm-hmm. And um, it, you have an older brother and I have a younger sister. And we all grew up in that house with really fond memories of that house. Um, one of the biggest challenges when your parents pass away or move to another facility, if they've been stationary or in one place for a certain period of time, there's a tendency to accumulate a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So in my parent particular case, they were both the eldest in their families. So when their parents passed away, they were handed most of their parents' belongings. So my parents had stockpiled stuff from their own individual residences growing up, plus all the stuff that a busy family of three kids accumulate over the years. So there was a lot of different materials and things that were just sort of stored, never really categorized or organized in any way. And if you're not moving in a, with some kind of frequency, it's important to get on top of that, why they still have their memory and why they still have their health. Mm-hmm. Because they will have knowledge of what something is and why it's important to them that after they're gone, no one will know. So like one example of that is I was cleaning up my parents' attic before both of them got sick and I had basically tossed out what I thought was a bag of Halloween costumes. You know, there was uh, like a blue uniform in there and some hats and some, some looked like some paper letters and, you know, specialty medals and stuff. I was like, this looks like some school project, you know. Hmm. My mom grabbed it and she's like, oh my God, you can't throw that out. 
I was like, what do you mean? It's some, you know, it's just a Halloween costume. She said, no, that is your great, great, great grandfather's Civil War uniform. Oh I've been wondering, gosh. I've been wondering where that is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just have to be really careful, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, and that's one thing that I would preface, you know, if, if your parents are getting older, you feel they're getting older, you feel they're getting forgetful, get in there and find out where everything is. Find out where the wills are. Find out where the insurance policies are. Like, we had the hardest time just finding car registrations and stuff like that. And it just was so complicated. Mm-hmm. So that would be one of my recommendations to your listeners is spend some time with your parents. It's kind of a fun experience going through their personal belongings and having them recollect their memories or why it's important to them. So that if and when they either die or need to move, um, you're, you're completely organized because you do not want to be left in the dark. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we mm-hmm. should tell the listeners that if it's not clear by now, Scott's parents are no longer living. But um, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of being 3,000 miles away from them as their health declined and kind of take us through what you went through? Sure. I think the biggest thing is being so far away there, um, you, you can't collapse time fast enough if someone's sick. You know, if um, there's several times that my brother or sister would call me and say, you know, we've just come out of the hospital, and you, you got like 18 hours to get here, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I live in Los Angeles. It's already, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon for me to get to a red eye to get to you. It's going to be a whole day. So I think one of the biggest challenges for me was geography. Mm-hmm. You're just getting across the country could be a day or a day and a half, depending on what what time it was. The, my brother and sister and I made a deal that we would never leave either one of them alone. My father predeceased my mother, and my mother died six months later. So we made a pact that every two weeks, one of us would be there at the house. So every month you were free and then you went and worked for two weeks and then you're off for a month so there were always was somebody there monitoring the doctors monitoring you know um my parents and just keeping everybody informed and that was in their in their later years as they really started to decline yeah my father declined i mean it all happened so quickly Mm -hmm. it was sort of a a real shock my father went in for a um valve replacement and it backfired and he was in the ICU for three months. Mm-hmm. And we finally got him stable and moved into uh, a hospice outpatient place where he would be getting better and coming home, and he died there. And how old you know, was he? 75. Okay, and that was? Well, four years ago in March. Mm-hmm. He died the first day of spring, and my mom died on Labor Day. So, yes, yeah, so and my mom had sort of had a long battle with emphysema and asthma that just finally... She got a cold and just was done. You know, that was her kind of thing. Um, She passed really quickly after she got sick. But, Scott, after your father died, your mom did not even go back to the house, right? She moved around a little. No, it was very complicated because my mom and my dad were married for so long. They were so dependent on each other. They were like one person. So my mom probably hasn't driven a car in 15 years because my father drove everywhere. You know, so that was sort of a shock for her right there. She was stranded in this house that she loved, and she was sort of just trapped in it. So we hired someone to live with her, to keep an eye on her, to make sure she didn't fall, to cook for her, to sort of do whatever she needed to do until we could get a better understanding of where she'd like to go. And And how did that go? Well, it worked out okay. In the beginning, it's very hard to find somebody 
who has your parents' best interest at hand more than you. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you want to, it would have been easier for one of us to move in and look after her, but that was not possible. My brother lives in Atlanta. I live in Los Angeles, and my sister has a busy family in Westchester. Mm-hmm. So it just wasn't going to work that way. Did you and, go through an agency, or how did you find that person? Yeah, we interviewed through an agency, and we looked at several different candidates. We weren't looking for a nurse. We were looking for more of a person who could do driving, doctor's appointments, housekeeping, and cooking. Mm-hmm. 24-7. 24-7, and she... We kind of cleaned up my sister's old bedroom, and she, that woman moved into um, that bedroom, and she was there with my mom for probably maybe six or seven weeks. Mm-hmm. And my mother called my sister and said, hi, I'd like to come for lunch. And my sister said, sure, and picked her up and brought her down. And my mom had you know, been actively doing her laundry or doing her bills or whatever, and she went to my sister's house for lunch, and after lunch was over, she said, you know, I don't think I want to go home ever again. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, moved into my sister's guest bedroom. What happened to the caregiver? She was released of her responsibilities. Yeah. Was she back at the house when your mother made that statement? Yeah, she was living there. My sister called the agency and she was terminated. And the locks were changed. And Mm -hmm. my mother never went back to that house ever again. Wow. So she was with my sister for a month or so. And I think my sister went back and got some of her belongings, but my mom didn't go with her. And uh, then my mom got a cold, and she just checked into the hospital, and then she quickly deteriorated there and moved right into hospice. So Didn't she live in assisted living for a period Never. of time? Never. No, we okay. looked at assisted living right before my father had his surgery with the hope that we could get them both in there together. Uh-huh. But one of the big drawbacks or one of the big conflicts with assisted living is you have to be able to walk through the front door you're not allowed to come in in an impaired condition. So my mom was having breathing problems at that point, and, you know, if she was out for any length of time, she was in a wheelchair. So that would have not, we would have had to, like, strengthen her up and get her through the interview and shove her through the door, you know. (laughs) And that wasn't going to work. And, you know, my father's surgery took precedence, and that's they kind of got themselves all wrapped up in that, and then that just sort of backfired, and it turned out to be, like, the worst year of everybody's life. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, losing two parents, losing a parent is hard enough, but losing both of them so close to each other, it's almost like a deja vu, you know. Yeah. We were at the service for my dad, which, you know, was wildly emotional, and then six months later we were at the same church doing the same service for my mother with the same people in the audience, and we were just astounded. We were just like, we never thought we would be back here so quickly. Yeah. seeing all of you again, you know. Right. You talked about your mom kind of losing the will to live a little bit, too, after your dad died. Well, she had been really sick, Jana, mm-hmm. and she hit it pretty well, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And when she did finally, you know, when she was in the hospital, the doctor came to see me, and he said, look, you know, hospitals are places for people to get better. People don't die here. They get better, and they go home. And he said, your mom's condition is probably one of the worst versions of that illness I've seen, and she's put up a really good fight. He said, but she's not going to get any better. And she was struggling at that point. And um, he said, there are places that she can go who can make her more comfortable than we can here at the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to my mom about it, and she was like, yeah, let's go. I'm done. You know, she said, I've been struggling with my breathing forever. It's so hard, and now your father's not here. Just make me comfortable. You know, because she was really having a hard time. She's hooked up to oxygen and everything else. How hard was that for you to hear her say that? I thought she was crazy, you know, but I, there's just, I think there's a moment of lucidity in your life toward the end where you know 
it's not going to get any better, and you know that it's going to deteriorate. And you know, to have her say that, you know, I thought she was nuts. You know, I was like, are you out of your mind? And I called in, you know, a psychiatrist, and I called in a priest, you know, and I was like, can you guys just talk to her and see if she's got all of her marbles, or is she just on too much medication, or what? And they all came out, and they said, your mother is very sound mind, and she knows exactly what's going on, and the course of this cold is going to roll into pneumonia, and she's going to be, it's going to be harder and harder for her, and it's probably best to put her someplace where she can be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And good for so, her for taking that ownership. She totally owned up to it. She Choosing. said, you know, uh, Choosing. Yeah, I, she said, I don't want to struggle. I don't want my children to struggle. She said, I am so tired of fighting, and it, this pneumonia is just going to get worse. It's going to be harder and harder on me, and I don't want to do it. And she said, I've had a full life. I've had a great life. I've done everything I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty, having her been so emotional when she sort of took the attention off of my father's passing and put it on herself, she sort of became like the mom you remembered when you were a kid. She mm-hmm. was totally focused and organized and like in charge. It was really surprising to see. Is there anything that you wish that you had known beforehand when you know that you found out as your parents got ill and then really rapidly declined that you wish that you could prepare yourself for? Is that like emotionally or is that more like task oriented? Uh, well, both actually. I think from an emotional point of view, if you have the wherewithal and the ability, it's really important and great to spend time with them when they're sick. You know, you really get a sense of closure and you can have conversations that, you know, maybe you've been reluctant to have throughout your life with them for didn't want to hurt their feelings or whatever, but you can be really honest. When a person is in a position like that and they've got a very little amount of time left, they're incredibly open mm-hmm. you know, to almost anything you want to talk about. So that was something that those, every time we were cycling in every couple, two weeks, I'd have like a whole new list of questions. Like, well, remember in fifth grade when I was in Boy Scouts and you did this? Or when I turned 16 and you bought me a miniature matchbox oh, car wow. instead of a real car? And we just like got it all out, you know? And I think from a practical side, which most people don't know, is that when somebody does pass away, you need like 12 original death certificates. You uh-huh. just need as many originals as you can get because they need to go everywhere. They need to go to insurance companies, they need to go to banks, they need, it just, and it has to be an original, it can't be a copy. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know that at all. And mm-hmm. the, after my father died, we made a mistake of only getting a few, and then we had to go back and get more and more. And then with my mom, we just knew in advance to ask for you know, 12 notarized copies. Mm-hmm. I know that your sister Wendy shouldered a large degree of the burden there. What was your sense of her involvement versus yours and your brother's? Yeah, I think there's a couple things there. I mean, there's a weird dynamic that happens in families when situations like that present themselves. And my sister was enormously close with, to both my parents, and she was the baby. Mm-hmm. So for, for all of her life, they were with her. But in terms of the number of years as a mature adult, it was less than my brother and myself. So you know, my brother had left the house when he was 18 to go to college. My sister was 12. So by the time he sort of moved on to his life. He got married at 23. My parents were still really young. They were like in their late 40s, mm-hmm. their early 50s. Mm-hmm. So my sister never, like she never was able, because of the time frame of their passing, so she was only on like the short side of being an adult with children with them. So it was a little harder for her. She was sort of more isolated. One of the things that we did do is move my mom and my dad both to a facility that was close to my sisters so that she could peek in on them every day and keep track of them. 
My dad was in the rehab facility, and my mom was in a hospice facility. And okay. both of them were around the corner from where my sister lived. Okay. So she could check in on them. Uh -huh. But I think whoever is left living locally or whoever is the youngest, it's a big chunk of the responsibility lands on their shoulders. It can, yeah. Yeah. Then the other side of that is when they did pass, the next round of responsibilities, you know, the planning of the services, the any kind of obituaries, and then sort of executoring of the estate, my sister did none of that. So that was handled by my brother and I. So we, when you look at it in the big picture, it may look like a lot of burden on her for a period of time, but there were other things that she was exempt from mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that sort of burdened us. You know? uh -huh. I remember um, at your mom's funeral, you said to the gathered and it was so touching because you know to have to to have to do that six months after you lost your dad that was just so touching but i remember you said you know we're orphans now yeah about you and your siblings yeah. um and you and your partner don't have kids so so now you're really on your own do you worry about who will be there to care for you sure absolutely i think you know what i meant from that orphan comment is that it really is just myself and my partner now. Mm -hmm. You know, you're completely unmoored from your parents. You know, they're gone. Mm -hmm. My siblings have children, so, you know, they've got an active family life. And, you know, Wayne and I talk a lot about, like, well, when we get older, who's going to take care of us? And how's that going to work? And I think one thing is, is that people in our generation have started to take care of themselves better. We have access to health care earlier. We're able to nip things in the bud in a way that we couldn't before. And in addition to that, I live in a climate where I'm forced to be active every day. Mm -hmm. If I lived in Maine where I couldn't be outside for six months of the year, I'd be parked in front of the TV eating and you know, just doing you know, nothing, no physical activity. So the goal for us is to stay as active as possible and as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And um, you know, we may not always be doing our high-stress jobs, but we will always will have some kind of work, whether or not it's a volunteer work or some kind of smaller job. That's really what's going to have to happen. Mm -hmm. And I, at some point, we're looking into long-term care policies, which we're starting to look at now. I'm 52 years old and Wayne's 53. So we're looking at getting those in place so that if one of us does get sick, there's you know, the financial wherewithal to handle that. Mm -hmm. Because it's not like I have a son or a daughter who can come in and take us in or let us move into their house. Mm -hmm. Well, you could always have somebody come to the house too yeah i could hire someone like we did for my mom and right. have them move in sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure do you have legal documents in place yes we have all of our legal documents in place regarding like um, trust agreements and executors and termination of life documents it's all in there mm -hmm. i think that you know there are there are so many new things that are happening with health care when it comes to boomers i mean i think that it's really a mixed picture because baby boomers, basically baby boomers have a hot, much higher rates of childlessness now in the U.S. Um, yeah. And so they're also, you know, likely to have other networks of care, social networks, mm -hmm. uh, or ac better access to paid caregivers. So I think baby boomers are going to be different in really so many ways that it's hard to project how we're going to deal with our own older age. But I wanted to uh, ask if you can tell us about uh, your own particular health condition and what you're going through right now. Sure. Uh, I have uh, something called Meniere's disease, which is a degenerative inner ear disease that affects your hearing and your balance. Mm -hmm. And it manifests itself mostly with extreme attacks of vertigo mm -hmm. and sort of loss of hearing. I've had it for 10 years. I've 
had a surgery earlier in probably eight years ago that did some work on it and alleviated some of the symptoms and just the general course of the disease has progressed and I'm now um, completely deaf in my left ear. So I'm looking at different options and actually this morning I was at a doctor's appointment trying to figure out the best way for me to control that and continue working and having a productive life. I mean, being an architect and talking to clients and being on job sites, it's really not super safe for me not to have any hearing on my left side of my ear. If someone's cutting something or something falls, I actually don't hear it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm investigating right now is a device that transfers the sound on the left side of my head through my massive bone in my brain, and I hear it in my right ear. So that's sort of my choice at this particular moment. Um, hopefully there's to be some bigger stuff down the line. Mm-hmm. And what do you think you would do differently as you got older if you had to? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that I would most likely try to step back on the amount of work that I'm doing or the kind of work that I'm doing. I think that you, there's a way to be productive and happy and useful as you get older, even if you do have a specific condition, as long as you're doing something. I think it's really the end when you just shut the door and say, okay, I've retired, I'm, I'm, that's all I'm, I don't have anything to do. You're not mm-hmm. accountable anywhere. Mm-hmm. So for me, and both Wayne, we just want to continue to be as active as we can, even if it's in a smaller way. Has he had any health issues that you guys have had to deal with? No. Yeah, you, no, not at all. And what about his parents? Uh, his dad had a heart attack uh, last Christmas, mm-hmm. and that was a big deal because they just weren't sure if he was going to make it. Mm-hmm. So uh, otherwise, his mom's super fit and his dad's in good health. That's good. So his his dad came through that. Yeah, it came through, correct. Yeah, yeah they're in their late 70s. So, Scott, do you talk with your friends about getting older and how you're going to deal with health care issues? Does anyone okay. you know talk about that? Uh, only people who are sick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very careful about who I talk to because I don't want to be like the old person in the room. Right. But, um, <laughs> no, I do talk to my friends about it, and I, I'm continually astonished by some people who are just completely not prepared. You know, there is no legal document in place for someone to take care of them or to deal with their end-of-life issues or have access to them or have... It's just astounding when you're like, oh, I guess we should really do that, huh? It's like, well, you guys, you're 52 years old. Yeah, of course you should. So um, in some ways, I try to educate my friends a little bit. You mm-hmm. know, and they're like, well, what did you guys do? And we tell them what we did. And they're like, oh, yeah, we should, probably should do that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you live in a place where people don't really like to talk about aging. <laughs> oh, no, they do everything they can to prevent it. <laughs> At least physically, yeah. Right. <laughs> do you think that being gay has uh, forced you also to kind of look at the whole picture differently in terms of taking care of yourself? Yeah, I think that um, and it's probably not true of the current generation of gay people, but obviously the older generation, my generation, I mean, we were sort of isolated and we had to take care of ourselves from a very early point on in our lives. I mean, in my history, there was, when I was 18 years old, there, you know, Rock Hudson died from AIDS. Right. And everything was extremely scary. You know, could you touch somebody and die? You know, if somebody kissed you, would you die? You know, all this back and forth. And I cared for my best friend who died from AIDS. And that was really a brutal experience when you're, when you're 23 or 25 years old. It's just mm-hmm. Very difficult to witness and be a part of. But I think, you know, part of the whole gay lifestyle, gay gayness, or whatever you want to call it, is that you've always sort of constructed your own world, you know, mostly as a way of protecting yourself, and secondly, as a way of just 
coping in a world that's a little different than who you are. Mm-hmm. I think that's changed now, but it makes you very self-reliant. And I think that that's a really important point is that because of that time alone and because of the you know, horrors of the AIDS crisis, I'm extremely self-reliant and super willing to you know, do my own work and find out what I need to get. Mm-hmm. Very practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people have to. Well, at that time, you know, if you could find the right doctor, you could get the right medication and you could live another month. You know, mm-hmm. and you just had to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's the only difference. I'm, some of my straight friends just seem a little more complacent about it. Oh, well, you know, so and so will take care of it, or oh, she'll figure it out, or he'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And probably going through the experience of caring for someone with AIDS prepared you in a way for your parents. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's a stretch. But it's no, no, no. It's totally because he was an integrated part of our family. He was like yet another sibling, and caring for him to the very end gave me insight into what the procedure was and what the process was. Like for my father, he had become brain dead after a what would look like a massive stroke or a heart attack right after they gave him a shower. And, you know, I, I kind of knew what those signs looked like because mm-hmm. it had happened to a friend before. So I was able to call the doctor and say, look, he's not responding, right? And he, like, he can't hear us. He's, he's just, and he's like, yeah, his body's just moving because his nervous system is active. That's all that's happening. Wow. So I was actually the one who turned off that piece of equipment. Hmm. So, I mean, it just, those hmm. the kinds of experiences, and if you talk to people who are like nurses or caregivers or people who've been through just, you know, nonstop experiences of trauma, there's a logical way to assess the situation that's not emotionally connected, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Right, yeah, absolutely. You know? Right, it, it does make sense. Um, how do you think that we talk about aging in this country, if we talk about it at all? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess, I mean, we only talk about it in terms of healthcare. You know, we never really talk about who's going to take care of all these baby boomers. I mean... I guess part of that is a lot of these younger kids or their children, um, you know, are struggling economically or in the workplace and have, in fact, moved home, you know, so that they've got not only pursuing their own careers, but also watching their parents aging and stepping in and helping out at home. That might be a good thing. I mean, it's unfortunate the economy's not so great for them that they can't go out and have their own house and their own life and everything else. But it might be a good thing because it could maybe bring families closer together and back into under one roof. And into a, a greater cultural awareness of the need to take care of each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. So listen, I don't want to keep you for too much longer on the phone. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or that, uh, advice that you can give to listeners? Uh, no, I just think what you're doing is great. I think that um, you know the, the book that you've written and the time that you've spent sort of getting the message out is really helpful and you can never have enough ammunition when you know, the time comes so thanks for all your work okay thanks scott joyce he's president and chief executive officer of scott joyce design and if you're not familiar with his work treat yourself to his website scott joyce design inc scott thanks so much for being on the call sure you're welcome jana okay take care bye-bye Bye. that's our show for today Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at AgeWise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at AgeWise.com. And listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. 
I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.